If you have a Bible with you, if you open it with me to the letter of James, we're enjoying our series preaching through the letter of James. Uh, you'll find it in the back of your Bibles if you're newer to the scriptures, after Hebrews and before 1 Peter. It's just on three pages, but it is rich and deep and good. Uh, if you'd like to have a Bible to follow along during the sermon, uh, we have them in the back there in front of the sound booth. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to make that yours. Um, we're calling this series Faith at Work, and uh, it has been a rich journey. Today I get the privilege to preach chapter 4, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, in a sermon that I'm simply titling War, and you'll understand why in just a moment. Pray with me as we jump in. God, we thank you for this time and this space that you provided. I thank you for the work that you're doing in and amongst our city, and the people uh, that you're gathering here at Disciples Church. Lord, that you are working in individuals' lives uh, and families and marriages. Uh, you're bringing restoration and healing and growth and maturity, uh, repentance, conviction of sin, to, to honor you, to know you, the true and living God. Lord, that we would uh, celebrate the grace of the gospel and the work of your son and his perfection and his substitution on the cross. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for saving faith. And I pray for anyone who may be found their way here today or might be listening to this podcast around the world later, just that you would, you would give ears to hear and eyes to see these wonderful truths, the truths of God according to your written word, that we would repent of sin and trust in you with all of our lives. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach. I pray that you would be not only in the speaking, but in the hearing. You'd help us to put away the distractions, the temporary things that are calling for our attention, that we'd really lean in this morning to hear your word, to, to, to see and savor you all the more. Uh, we love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says this, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We're just going to dig into these three verses. They're rich and thorough and thick, and you'll see why in just a, in the next little bit as, as we um, mind our way through them. I pray that it's rich and good for your soul. As we move now into chapter 4, as we study James' letter here, uh, we turn to the reality of relational and in, inter uh, or uh, internal war. Relational war with others, internal war within ourselves. And he introduces this topic and focus with a question. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? See, we, you and I, we have a problem. Maybe not you and I. But, but maybe we do have a problem. Maybe... Maybe uh, that's why you're kind of acting distant lately. Or, or maybe that's why I feel like you're talking down on me behind my back. Or, or maybe that, that has me just feeling super insecure and it's causing me to be really critical of you and make you look bad in front of other people. 
Or, or maybe I just don't want to be around you. Not right now, maybe not anymore. So, again, that's not you and I. Maybe it is. But does it sound familiar? It's familiar because we, mankind, have a big problem. And that is that we are at war. The human race is at war. Period. Division. Hatred. Anger. Rage. Manipulation. Gossip. Envy, pride, abuse, discrimination are all consequences of sin. We are at war relationally. The word quarrels here that we see in this first part of verse 1, the Greek word, the original transcription is the word polemos, which means war where I'm getting that. We're at war. The English word for fights here in verse 1 is is the word battle in the Greek. The emphasis here in the original question is that there's a war, some fighting, or some discord among you, he's saying. And that's simply to point out that conflict is real, that we have conflict with others, other people. So let's come back to the question. What causes fights or battles, or quarrels, or disputes, or wars among you and other people. James is acknowledging a very sad but real normality of our fallen nature of mankind. Though we are constantly in conflict with each other, even people we deeply love, we are a people at war. I don't mean missiles and tanks and armies. That is a part of it, sadly. But I mean what James is really getting at here, highlighting that there's a very real presence of conflict and discord that is a part of life with others. The kind of fighting that happens every day in the little things that terrorize a marriage cause discord, hurt in a family, in work relationships, or in your neighborhood. The kind of war that's driven by pride and ego, selfish gain, maybe even hatred, extreme laziness, or sinful judgment. There's a division among man that goes back to the very beginning of the human race. We see in the, in the early Testament, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, the outcome of Adam and Eve's sin when mankind fell. It says, Their eyes of them were both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And, and they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees in the garden. Notice what happens. The moment sin enters the picture, sin against God's good and perfect commandment, they covered themselves and tried to hide from God. 
it divided them. This is a problem for mankind because we were created for relationships. Relationships with God and relationship with each other. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. The Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. After making Adam, the Lord God said, It was not good for the man to be alone. See that in Genesis 2.18. So he made woman. The perfect unity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, looked upon man, one man who was alone, and declared that it was not good for mankind to be singular. Part of being made in the image of God meant that the fellowship and the unity of, of the triune God would be enjoyed among mankind. That man would flourish in fellowship, in community, and relationship. So God made Eve, and then gave them the physical ability in marriage to conceive and have a family. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1, 28. Then Genesis 2, chapter 2, verse 24 God defines marriage. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. They were naked and unashamed. Can, can you imagine for a moment the kind of true unity and love and acceptance that walking around in front of others naked meant? You can't imagine it. Because of sin. So think about being naked in front of other people in everyday life situations. For some, it would be the worst thing you could imagine. Most embarrassing you could ever fathom. It would be unbearable even to try to picture it. But the nakedness that Adam and Eve knew before the fall, before sin, wasn't about nudity. But it did represent something very, very important. Their nakedness meant that they were transparent with one another. It meant that they didn't need to control what other people knew. They didn't need to hide. It says that they felt no shame. They were unashamed. Which, which means they were completely at ease with themselves. There was nothing to be embarrassed by. They, they had a stable identity with God. They weren't trying to get the approval of each other to try to feel complete. They were complete. Recognize God's design for us outside of sin is for us to be known, deeply, intimately known, and yet loved, not rejected. Known and loved. To be naked and unashamed. And yet in our modern world, those two things don't go together. To be really, truly known without any mask, without any cover, rarely means that you're really loved, often rejected. To be truly naked and transparent means constantly you're feeling shame. So that's what was lost 
at the fall with sin. So the first thing they did was cover themselves and hide. They separated. Sin caused them to feel the need to prove themselves. It brought great shame. It caused them to make assumptions for what the other person was thinking and how they maybe felt about them. It caused them to be overly critical of each other. So they began to judge each other and to look down on each other. Sound familiar? All of this is the reality of relational brokenness and war today among us. I say this to show you that at this critical moment at the fall, the fall of mankind in sin is where conflict began for us. Broken relationships were born. War among us was on its way. And it didn't take long for that conflict to have a major impact on the first family. I mean, you really stop to consider their testimony. Beyond the fall, the sobering tragedy, Adam and Eve's firstborn son, Cain, had such great anger and envy for his brother, Abel, that he murdered him. Think about that. The first family's testimony, his one son murdered the other. You know how dark that is. There's a lot of great tragedy around us. And even that, any of us would say, is as hard as it gets to know a family or someone that a sibling literally murdered the other out of anger. Think about the fact that Cain wasn't influenced by TV, violent video games, by other kids. Just the two of them. So what was it? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? By the way, that's not an endorsement for violent video games for your kids. (laughs) The answer is sin. The selfishness of sin causes us to take, to fight, to hurt each other instead of really, truly love each other. It causes us to try to prove ourselves, to try to save ourselves, to try to earn our joy and acceptance. So we lie and we cheat and we steal and we kill and we manipulate. I want you to see the perpetual conflict that is a reality of sin at work. In our sin, there is no lasting peace. There is always temptation to war. I want you to think about your marriage for a moment, if married or a close relationship you have with another person. Think about the trivial things that you argue over the stupid stuff really we're really fighting over this think about the things that literally cause upheaval in your marriage or in your friendships in your family think about the things that cause upheaval among your children 
Really? You guys are at each other over that? We have to see the cause of these things is sin. And and if you're resonating with me today, then then you're in the right place. Because if you're ever going to know true healing or maturity in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work relationships or friendships, you have to know how to address your core issue, which is sin. Before we get into James' answer, recognize with me that our world is going nuts trying to figure out how to solve this problem. Are they not? I mean, it's in sports, it's in politics, it's in just daily community among our city, it's in families. I mean, the world is going crazy. How do we fix our discord, our war, our disagreement? And the problem is a lost world only has manual, external changes to apply. And so we apply new laws or we apply new systems of how things should work, new habits. Maybe you relate to some of that. Maybe that's how you've tried to deal with some of your conflict is you just have a new habit, new way of going at it. But it doesn't seem to really give you lasting change or resolve. Why? Because it's just external modification. See, you can manually turn a ship that's on autopilot to a different course. But the moment you let go of the steering wheel, it will go back to its autopilot course. Therefore, there must be a reprogramming of that ship if it's ever going to change in a lasting way and remain on a different course. This is where James is going. This is what he wants us to see in this next part of verse 1. There's a level of contention and fighting among those he's writing to that we still very much relate to. And he loves his brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, So he, he, he doesn't prescribe them external modifications. Just walk around with your left hand in the air, just do this different, just say that. No, he gets to the core of the issue. He gets to the heart of the matter. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Look at the next part of the verse. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The word passions here is the Greek word hedone. It means lust or fleshly desires. It's where we get our word Hedonism. Hedonism is an absolute pursuit of pleasure. That highest in pursuit of life is pleasure. It's self-indulgence. It's an ethical theory that pleasure is the highest good that mankind can know. And so it's our greatest aim in human life. Whatever you got to do to find pleasure and have pleasure, that's a hedonistic lifestyle. But hedonism is heathenism. It is absent of God. It is, it is the work of sin in the heart, in life. Sin that doesn't want to honor God or please God, know God. It wants to please itself. Sin that causes us to disobey God and do whatever we want in order to satisfy our own flesh. 
Paul says it plainly in 2 Timothy 3, 4. In these last days, mankind would be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is our reality because of sin. Its longings do not honor God. They long to honor ourselves. They're passions that are driven by our sin-sick natural state. A state that goes back to the fall of mankind and Adam's sin. A state that causes us to be at war. And that war and that conflict plays out in our, in our entire lives. James 4.1 What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This is why you're fighting. This is why we fight. This is why your kids are fighting. There is a critical clarity I want to make sure you understand about what James is highlighting here. Only those who have truly trusted Christ have a war within them. We talked about our war, the war among us. But only true Christians have war within them. And here's why. Because outside of Christ, if you have not trusted your life to Jesus as Lord, you're still the Lord of your own life, then there is no war in you. The Scriptures are clear that you are spiritually dead. All you do is sin. Even the good you do is never for the aim of God's glory. It's for the aim of self or man. Therefore, it's evil. Therefore, it is sin. That we're totally depraved, spiritually dead, away from Christ, away from new birth and salvation. Listen to God's assessment of mankind before the flood. In Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like, dude, that's describing a really bad dude. Like some of the really bad ones. Kind of thing like the, the elite of the bad guys. No, no, no. That is a, an assessment of mankind. As Apostle Paul says in Romans 7.18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Titus 1.15, to the corrupt and unbelieving, those who are dead in sin, not trusting their lives to Jesus as Lord, nothing is pure. Their minds and their consciences are corrupted. So, while a non-believer will face the deep effects of sin in your own person, in your emotional state, in your uh, mental state, even your physical state, you might feel like you're at war within, but there is no war for a dead, spiritually dead person. You just do sin. It's what you know, it's what you do. But for the Christian, the person who God, by His grace, has given faith in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of sin, to be reborn, to be given the Holy Spirit, there is a war within. Until He takes us to glory, from salvation to glory, a war begins within us. Now understand, the saved person is no longer enslaved to sin, to only sin. The power of the Lord is now at work. The Holy Spirit is on board to live out 
and do the work of the Spirit in a, in a new believer's life. Just mature that person and bring conviction of sin and maturity in Christ. So the war then that's happening inside of a true believer is because the Holy Spirit has shown up to make war with the flesh. This is what James is referring to in chapter 4, verse 1, the second part. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Hey, there's this conflict happening. See, number one, that it's not external, it's internal, and, and, and that there's a war happening. And we, to understand this better, we can look to Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 5, it's a little more forward in your New Testament, verse 16 through 18. I'll cut right to the chase. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Right away, Paul is helping us understand there's an internal battle in the life of the Christian. For any one of us who truly trust in Jesus as Lord, been saved, the grace of God, the flesh and the Spirit are in a constant conflict within. Peter speaks to this, to, hit, to the church, to the beloved, the saved ones. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, so he recognizes we're, we're in a land that we're foreigners now. We've been saved to a new kingdom, but God still has us here to testify of the gospel. And these lost people are not necessarily people of God. Some of them may still be saved, but so he's recognizing kind of an exile, a sojourner reality for all Christians. He says, he said, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So Peter refers to it as the passions of the flesh. Paul refers to it as the desires of the flesh. In Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh, he calls it. So let's stop and unpack what is the flesh? What are we talking about? We're not talking about real body. Skin. Most of the references to the flesh in the New Testament are not having to do with the actual physical organ, but is better understood as an ego, a sinful ego that feels the emptiness of its reality and then tries to use the resources of its own power to fulfill it. The flesh is the I who tries to satisfy me with anything but God. It's prideful. The ego of the flesh. It feels the emptiness, in it, but it loathes the idea of being satisfied in faith in Jesus. The flesh prefers to use legalistic resources of its own power to try to fill its emptiness. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. 
The basic mark of the flesh then is an unsubmissiveness. That's why I like to call it ego. It doesn't want to submit to God's absolute authority or rely on God's wonderful mercy. It's too prideful for that. Flesh says, no, I'll do it myself. So in the conservative form, the flesh produces legalism. I'm going to follow all the rules. I'm going to do that and earn my status. The pride in that, ego. And the, the, the liberal form of the flesh produces hedonism. I'm just going to have everything I want. It doesn't matter who says otherwise. So when we talk about the works of the flesh, why is it called the work? Well, because it, the flesh feels like it deserves, and so it needs to earn. It, 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 it's trying to use its own merit to, to be satisfied. And so we see the works of the flesh, the work of sin in, in, our, in our natural state, uh, laid out later in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. This is the work of the flesh. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warned you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you might be saying, man, that's a sobering text. I feel like I still struggle with some of that stuff. It's a big statement. We'll not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice he says, we'll do such things. He's saying those who give themselves to these things. That doesn't mean that there's not a struggle against them. And that's Paul's point here in Galatians 5, that there is a war within that is happening. The spirit and the flesh. And and I've said it before, and you need to hear this clearly today. A Christian, a true Christian, is not a person who is perfect or who has no fleshly desires. Don't be a fool to say that the goal is to have no fleshly desires. Until glory, you will struggle against fleshly desires. A Christian is at war with those desires by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. A non-Christian has no war, no Holy Spirit on board to fight it. All they do is live by the flesh. Understand, the war within, therefore, is a good thing. Conflict in your soul, hear me, is not all bad. Don't miss this this morning. If you have no war within you, it means the flesh controls the entire dominion. That's bad. Praise God for the war within you. Because serenity in sin is death. Praise God that you're here today because some of you likely are coming out of a season whereby you have been all too comfortable with your blatant sin against God. You've given yourself completely over to it. 
to the desires of your flesh, to man-made remedies like sex outside of marriage, drug use, or sinful pursuit of money, to think that these things will satisfy you. And they don't. The greatest thing that could happen to you today, by God's grace, is that you would wake up to your serenity to sin. You're just peace with it. Because it leads to death. It leads to eternal death. If this is you, the call of the Scriptures is to repent and believe that God would give you eyes to see the gospel, the work of Jesus on your behalf, and you would be flattened by it. You would be overwhelmed at the grace of a holy God to send His only Son to forgive you an undeserving sinner who completely misses His holy standard. Some of you arrogantly think you're going to be okay with God because compared to other people, you're doing great. No part of the judgment about your standing with God will have anything to do with your comparison to another person. But how you meet or fail the holy, perfect standard of God. For him to allow people in who don't meet that to his holiness is to betray his holiness. And so you are dead and desperate for a Savior with a perfect record. God the Son takes on flesh, lives perfectly without sin, dies substitutionally in the place of his people, conquers death to rise to victory, and now sits at the right hand of God, interceding for his people. God sends the saved out with the testimony of the gospel because he has more of his people he intends to save. We don't know who that is. He does. So we preach the gospel boldly into the ends of the earth. But what must happen is he must awaken your dead soul to give you eyes to see and to savor that. And when that happens, you will confess your sin fully, humbly, and trust your life to Jesus. You will no longer want to be the Lord of your own life. You will want him to be the Lord of your life. To repent and believe in Him is to be saved. This is not a prayer you say, an aisle you walk, you check a box and kind of go through some kind of incantation, manual, forced thing, hang your hat on that, and then just go back to living your life. The whole point of James' letter is that if you have true faith, it's going to produce a life of good God-honoring works. Will you struggle? Yes, but you will have the Holy Spirit on board to fight that sin, to grow, to bring near the body of Christ, to mature in the faith and in things that honor God. And someone who's hanging their hat on something they did years ago and have no conviction, no repentance, the scriptures are saying that person doesn't have real faith. They have a false faith, something that's religious, man-made. It's not saving faith. This is a good thing to know and to hear. Because if you fit in that category, which many of the people of our church will look back on their testimony and go, that was me. I did religion. I attended the church. No wonder why I couldn't stand it. There was no spiritual life in me yet. Thought, thought it was working. I thought I did all the things I needed to do. God still yet to save me. 
could be a, a passion to die to myself to live to Christ. If you've trusted Jesus with your life, the Spirit of God has landed to do war with the flesh. And if that's you, I say take heart, even when your soul feels like a battlefield at times. I've sat with men and women who have been through atrocities and sin and darkness that you, you all would hardly even stand to hear. And they are new people in the Lord new creation, with new habits and new character. For you to say, what I've been through is too gnarly, too big, too rough for God to do that in me is arrogance on your part to somehow say that God's impotent. Who are you? You're talking about the living God and His power able to do a mighty work in your life. But pastor, I'm really struggling I say, okay, that's good. That struggle is a good sign. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Serenity to sin is bad. So bad that you claim Jesus and don't repent. Serenity to sin, we're to treat you as an unbeliever. That's how wicked and false that testimony is. But hear me clearly today. Spiritually dead men don't struggle. If you are spiritually dead, there is no struggle. You might have struggles in life with people and within yourself, but I'm talking about real deep down. This is messing me up. Broken before a holy God. Fight against sin. That's the Holy Spirit on board to do war. And so I say it's good news if you're struggling. Because it means there's a war happening. A power at work within you, the Holy Spirit, is on board to fight the work of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? One of the main things he's saying, the drama and heartache of life, where it's coming from, He says, it's not enough to try to just change habits and make some external changes. Not that new habits or external changes are not a part of what God will do in your life. I'm not saying that's all for naught. But I'm saying if it's not more than that, then you're doomed. You, You won't. You'll go back to autopilot. He's saying, understand your passions are at war within you. An internal transformation must happen. It is a spiritual matter. The battle that is happening internally must be had so the Spirit of God can make war in the flesh and bring about real repentance and sanctification. This is the hope you have for the quarrels and the fights that you're going through with others. The works on the outside are the evidence of what's happening on the inside. This has been James' point from verse 1, chapter 1. Your faith goes to work. True faith will show its fruit. It it will prove itself. What that means is if there's no faith or you have false faith, it's going to show itself in just a lack of desire and conviction. You just don't care. You're just giving yourself to sin. 
No fight. No, no draw of the brothers and sisters around you to say, help me fight. Help me honor God in this. To dive into Scripture. To call out to the Holy Spirit in prayer. Here are Galatians 5, 16 and 18 again. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other. James is going to talk further now about the desires of the flesh, the consequences of them. Look with me at verse 2, James 4, 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The Greek word here for desire in this verse is epithumia. Epithumia means an evil desire or an over-desire, an excessive desire. We see it a lot in the scriptures because it's a real problem. James is saying that when you desire the wrong things, evil desire, or you have an over-desire or an excessive desire for good things, you will not be satisfied. That's what he means by you do not have. You desire and do not have. You're not satisfied by these things. You lust over things and cling to things. They don't satisfy you. So then what? Then you lash out. This is what he means by you covet and can obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Think about that. We can lash out in sinful and hurtful ways to the point of taking someone's life. Think about that. Our sinful cravings for evil things or an overclaim or a covenanting of good things leads to such a lack of satisfaction or letdown that it will equal major relationship discord even to the taking of another person's life or the taking of your own life. The failure of the things we covet or have evil or over-desire for, leaves us so unsatisfied, that's its tragedy. Hear the potency of what James is saying here. This means we should slow down and really do business with epithumia, to understand that, so we don't live it. We make war with it, we replace it. Epithumia, an evil desire, or an over-desire, or an excessive desire. Let's, let's talk about the first facet, an evil desire. An evil desire is for things that are evil. There is no good in them. They're against God in every way. They are the works of the flesh that Paul listed, that we read earlier. They are sexual immorality, witchcraft, idolatry, envy, stealing, murder, Well, it seems that it's simple that we have nothing to do with these things. Sadly, in our modern society, many people have way more to do with these things than we should. They're so much more normal than they should be. It's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Church, we should have a true disdain for evil things. And yet the lost world wants to say, oh, that's just the church being stiff. That is so lame. 
And we buy into that. So we indulge in evil things and we, we call them good and okay and we should have nothing to do with them. But epithemy is not just evil desires, it's also an over-desire. It's to take, what that means is it's the taking of any good thing, something God created that's good, in itself is not evil. The good gift. And when you handle that good thing rightly, it honors God and, and is good for life. When you handle it wrongly, you have an overclaim uh, or excessive claim to it, then it becomes sinful idolatry. So the good thing, like food, an overclaim to food turns into sinful gluttony. A good gift of wine, as we see in the scriptures, and an overclaim to it turns into drunkenness and discord. The good gift of children. I know some of you are going, that doesn't always feel like a good gift. Is, is actually, I think, in our society and for the history of man, potentially one of our greatest sinful handlings is one of the sweetest gifts that we're given in children. And we have an over-desire or an excessive desire for them. We, in other words, we find in them our identity, our hope, our purpose, our joy. You will not be satisfied in the created that way. And that overclaims idolatry and will leave you broken. Watch people claim Jesus, but really live in the idolatry of their children. And then one of their children dies and they're undone. I don't mean just mourning, real mourning. I mean undone to reveal the reality of the heart, the sinful overclaim of a good thing. Your children belong to the Lord. He's entrusted them to you for his purposes, whether you like them or not. Don't be guilty of holding him hostage because deep down in your heart you have an over-desire for your children to the point where you would curse or shake your fist at God who is holy and perfect and good in every way. See that when we look to the desires of the flesh, both evil or excessive, to satisfy us, they will always let us down. It will lead to fighting and great upheaval and murder and discord. Suicide. Here, James 4.2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Notice what he says in the next part. You do not have because you do not ask. Do not have what? Satisfaction. Completeness, joy, hope, peace, joy. I said joy twice. We do not have that because we do not ask. Ask who? Think about this. Ask who? Ask God. God, who is God? God is the almighty creator, sustainer, 
and ruler of everything. In our sin, that causes us to think that our answers to life and and things will not satisfy us. It's sin to think that any of God's stuff will satisfy us like only He can. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, 19-25. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, mankind. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. There is no such thing as an atheist, according to God, Every man knows that God is real by the evidence of the things he's made. A person can lie to themselves to say that God doesn't exist, but they are without excuse, he says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts in impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We do not have, we are not satisfied because what we're looking to be satisfied in is creation, is not the creator. It's not in the only one who truly can satisfy. God himself. James says you do not know satisfaction when you live out of the desires of your flesh because you do not go to the one who satisfies James said it in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, whom there is, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We do not have, because we look to the counterfeits of creation to satisfy us when only God can satisfy us. One of my favorite quotes is this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We, do, we dream for scraps. We chase momentary things and identity and stuff. We hang our lives and our, and our identity on relationships that could be gone in 10 minutes from now. 
We look to find deep and lasting pleasure in fast cars and big screen TVs and extramarital intimacy, tasty meals and drugs and making more money and kids' trophies. But these are all inadequate, Pascal says very well, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by the infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. So how? How do we ask then? He says, it was what we need to ask. How do we ask? You do not have because you do not ask. Well, how do we ask? By faith in Jesus Christ. By trusting God, by depending on Christ, by walking in the Spirit. We pray to God in faith. Faith that knows He has us. Faith that knows He'll provide us all we need. You will never know true satisfaction until you go to God in faith and trust your life to Christ as your sufficient Savior and to be your Almighty Lord. What does James mean when he says in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Two things here as we begin to wrap up. See this with me. What's wrong about the pursuit? Number one, the desire to spend it on our passions. The aim of it. The wrong aim in our desires and prayers is what's wrong. If the aim, the end game is self or creation, then that's sinful because it's not ultimately God in His glory. 1 John 5.14 We can be confident that He will listen to us whenever we ask for anything in line with His will. The aim of the prayers that God will surely answer is His will, is His glory. It is not my will. It is is God who ultimately I want to see glorified, not myself. If God is my aim, He will provide the answers to that prayer because God will always fulfill His will. But if our passions, the passions of our flesh, if our evil or over-desires are our aim, we will not know true satisfaction or joy or peace. Those things will never satisfy like only God can. This is what he means by you ask wrongly. You're asking for the wrong stuff. Your aim's the wrong thing. God doesn't bend our will. We must joyfully submit to his. Number two, the wrong posture in our prayers is also what's wrong about it. The other way we can ask wrongly, therefore not receive satisfaction, when it, is that we don't come to him in true faith. John 3 John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There is a faith there that must be in play. Not just coming to church, not just going through the motions. Real faith in God. If you do not come to him, hear this, please don't miss this. If you do not come to him in true faith, Are you coming to Him at all? If you do not truly believe and have trusted in Him and trust Him, then how are you not just saying words? 
Where are you sending those words? It must be in real faith. Trusting God. Some of you might be guilty of going through the motions of Christianity, but you don't truly believe and surrender to Jesus as Lord. You try to add him to your throne and your ways and your priorities. You've got to see the error in that. God will not share your throne with you. See how arrogant that is. when I die to myself and I submit my life and my loved ones and all of it to him I trust him as Lord that's what it means to be a Christian that's why this letter is written that's why so much of the Bible is talking about people who have fake or false faith they've done some kind of religious thing to think that they're good and in the sobering words of Christ himself he will look at many and say I never knew you that's why this sermon series is a great blessing and why it's needed so that any of us who have lived in seasons of real, just religious, dead, fake faith, that we'd see that. There would be real faith by God's will by which we'd be reborn and these works of good faith would begin to produce in sanctification. And, I, and if you're relating to that, I just say you're in good company because much of our church, that's their testimony. It's the most amazing thing to see people come to clarity to go. I look back and I just see seasons where I'm just going through these motions. And God did not really save me yet. By which I truly was not on the throne anymore. It's Him. Belongs to Him. It's my joy to be His. To trust in Him. To not just go through the motions of heal my son or or, or fix the situation in my work and then hold him in contempt like, you better know but to really say, but I want your will to be done, God. There's my bold and honest request, but your will be done. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, it says in Hebrews 4.16. There we will receive mercy and find grace to help us when we need it. I pray that your faith cause you to trust and be satisfied in him. To embrace the war within of the Holy Spirit against the flesh and to seek the brothers and sisters of Christ for accountability, to dive into God's Word, to put your life on the altar, say, I'm yours, and see that change begin to happen. And you know what will happen? In the midst of the sinful world we're in, real transformation begins. In relationships, in our own lives. To close, I just want to show you what our faith at work produces that is so opposite of quarrels and murder and division. Just, just hear Acts chapter 4, 32 through 34, and then I'm going to pray and we're going to sing to God and we're going to go. Now to the full number of those who believed, who truly trusted Jesus as Lord, to the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. 
And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet so it could be distributed to each who had need. Just see how opposite that is from discord and backbiting and envy and all the other stuff we live in all the time. And I just pray, may it be so. Amen? Among us, as a church, our families, and our testimony of Christ as we go from this place into the week that He is prepared for you to go live primarily for His glory, testimony of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time together. In Your Holy Word, Your Word is a good gift. I continue to pray for the people groups who do not have the Word of God translated in their language, and the missionaries that are being prepared to be sent to teach the Gospel, to preach it so that Your people would be saved. Let us who have the Word translated be blessed to study it, to know it, to hunger for it, and grow in it every day. This priority of gathering corporately on Sundays is not a throwaway. It is the peak of our week to fellowship with the brethren, to celebrate the living God, to sit under the teaching of your word that it might edify and and sanctify and convict and, and motivate. And so I just pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be done with church in these next few moments, but that we just be getting started this week. That the church will be active and alive and at well in our cars as we travel, in our homes as we arrive, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, that you would be glorified, magnified, and honored, that we'd be doers of the word and not hearers only, and that those who you're giving ears to hear and eyes to see would repent and believe and be saved, and that maybe today is that day for people who have shown up here. What a joy that would be. We love you, Lord. You are our God. And we are your people. And so we celebrate you and testify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray.